0: Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. Tonight's show is going to be focused on the Navarro River Watershed. Pinot Fest ended last week, so it feels timely to focus on this area. So the Navarro River Watershed is the largest coastal basin in Mendocino County, and it contains over 220 miles of salmon and steelhead habitat. It is the ancestral land of several Pomo tribal nations, and today it supports a significant base of agriculture, livestock, and timber production. There are several parks in the watershed that host virgin redwood forests like in Inhendi Woods. It's home to northern spotted owls, salmon and steelhead, Pacific lamprey, and many other fish and wildlife. And tonight, my guest is Linda McElwee the Watershed Coordinator of the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District. Linda is an expert on all things related to the Navarro River watershed, and so I thought we might start with an introduction to the Resource Conservation District. Um, Linda, I'm hoping you can provide a description of what kinds of programs the RCD supports and how people can learn more about the RCD.
1: Yeah, sure, great. Be happy to uh, talk more about that. So, the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District, or we call it RCD for short, um, is the one um, resource, the RCD uh, in Mendocino County, which has over 2 million acres. And we work with landowners across the county uh, to implement or uh, give resources help you know potentially uh, funding or connect to resources uh, to to implement best management practices related to soil water and forests on a voluntary basis and um just a little bit of background there's every county has at least one RCD so there's about 90 across the state and um they're all doing good work throughout the state, so it's it's a great resource. People can find out more uh, at our website at uh, mcrcd.org, and there's a lot of information and resources around the water and soil and forest programs that we have, and uh, there's yeah just a plethora of uh, different links and things to um, help landowners find out more about how they can steward their land and uh, take care of the natural resources.
0: So Linda, your position as a watershed coordinator is focused within the Navarro River watershed. And I thought we could start with having you tell us a little bit about the RCD's history of conservation work in the watershed.
1: Sure. I. Um, I I moved to the watershed to Boonville, or actually Philo at that time, in the year 2000. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because, well, I mostly have been kind of working in the creeks and rivers since that time here and and on my own journey of learning about the watershed. But the Anderson Valley Land Trust uh, and the Mendocino County Water Agency, which we had at the time. Uh, worked to uh, do a, develop a, a restoration plan for the watershed that came out in 1998. And so in around 2000, when we moved here, uh, Patty Madigan uh, was hired as one of the first staff members um, at the Resource Conservation District to, you know, kind of charged with starting to implement that plan. And that's, a, you know, the plan was it took a number of years to develop it was there was a whole technical advisory committee that worked on it for years. There was a lot of analysis and studies done to inform that plan, and and recommendations for how to how to restore the watershed. And um, so that's sort of where I intersected at that time. And but also concurrently at that time, a lot of things were happening. So in 2000, the Environmental Protection Agency listed the the navarro got watershed got listed navarro river got listed for impairment which is a designation um called total maximum daily load tmdl which is a terrible acronym but tmdl for too much sediment and too high of temperatures and that's mostly focused on salmon habitat and there's uh, wild runs of coho salmon here and steelhead and that was what that really that those impairments there was too much sediment choking up the gravels and the sediments the fine sediment for the salmon habitat for the reds as well as filling in pools and then the temperatures were uh kind of they go together some the temperature and flow uh go together and um and sediment kind of all intersect to create too high of temperatures. So the coho salmon need uh, much cooler. They like cool, clean, clear water. And, uh, steelhead can handle a little bit of higher temperatures. So they, they're a little bit more resilient in their life cycle and their habitat needs. But, um, by the year 2000, it was clear that, and, and the, that listing sets in motion a whole set of plans and recommendations and targets for recovery um, to help recover and uh, decrease those temperatures, decrease the amount of sediment and increase populations. Uh, So soon also, also concurrently around just after that, I think it was by 2000, Two or four it was in process where coho salmon got listed as endangered species, federally recognized as endangered species, and steelhead got listed as threatened. And so all of these things in motion and kind of started really a lot, sending a lot of resources to the Navarro to try and do something, uh, to address these, um, these issues. And we, with the the restoration plan, that's where the RCD really kind of hit the ground um, running, I would say, Patty did, and uh, started really working off of that restoration plan to first we started wherever there was a willing landowner. And, you know, that was sort of (laughs) in the beginning, that was where we went. Like if there was somebody that, you know, had an issue with their creeks and there was that, you know, that really that was the threshold where we had a willing landowner. It always starts with a willing landowner. But um, and we also focused on the erosion and the sediment because temperature wasn't as much of an issue at that time. And it was not that it wasn't an issue. It definitely was an issue. It just was more complex to either talk about or to understand. And it wasn't as critical as it soon became, not soon, but like by, by certainly by the drought years of 2012 flow, we kind of switched from erosion being the, the main impairment to, that needed sort of critically to be addressed. We've switched to flows.
0: So this reminds me of, the history and evolution of different land use practices that occur over time and how those practices resulted in specific impacts. And then also how the conservation community responded to those impacts. And it just seems like over time, land use practices have changed significantly and our understanding of how certain kinds of land management Um, activities affect local ecology has improved, making us better stewards of the land. And I think the same could be said about the response of the conservation community over time. Conservation work has really expanded and is not as singularly focused on one particular issue. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about the historical land uses that occurred in the Navarro River watershed and how that translate to the work that you just described, like developing a restoration plan and conservation targets that are tied to the impacts of those historical land use practices,
1: yeah, so um so the basically European white settlement started in uh, in the eighteen fifties and um, soon thereafter, I mean, I think it really started with ranching in those days and hops and a lot of different crops were grown. And there was definitely agriculture happening and uh, and logging, the beginning of logging. And then we saw this tremendous boom by the end of the 1800s in the town of Navarro, which is kind of in the, we call it the deep end, um, was a boom town. And there were railroads coming from Albion and in and out. And there was just massive amounts of logging that kind of that continued along with ranching. There was like uh, like 300,000 sheep or something. I mean, a lot of sheep uh, in the area. So there was sheep ranching that happened. And then there was also uh, logging that progressed from the 1800s into the mid 1900s. you know, late, you know, still, still today, but, um, <clears throat> that really. Right. But like in the seventies in particular. Yeah. a pretty big hit. Or two. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I think what, you know, and along with that, we'll just say, uh, you know, there was complete erasure of the, 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 tribal, uh, people that lived here, the Pomo that lived here during that time as well. So mm-hmm. that's a, a, a pretty sad part of the story here. a Very sad part of the story here as well. But, and um the the logging in particular i would say because what happened i think my understanding and this is really just piecing together there were several things going on but uh, a really great story that helps sort of illustrate this that i found really helpful it's called rivers of a lost coast that really visually tells the story kind of of what happened with the fishery in particular and the logging part of it was after the, the war ended and uh, all that big equipment came back, the you know, D6s and D8s. That's when things went real whole hog, I would say, partly where they would start going up the mm-hmm. creeks with the heavy machinery. I mean, there was other things happening with the railroads and a lot of clear cutting. and you know yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the big trees were <laughs> taken in the eight, late 1800s and early 1900s. Mm-hmm. But then there was the the road building that happened all the skid roads went in all over throughout right, the whole they watershed. right could show places then, they
0: never could have gone before
1: Yeah. 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 So then there had of the 1955 flood and the 64 flood. On top of that, that really had a huge impact. After a lot of, I think, clear cutting and heavy logging and the road building, that was part of a sediment issue. So then a ton of sediment came down. The 55 was the biggest flood on record. We do have a a USGS gauge on the Navarro, and that's been in since 1950. So that's a, been very helpful. And that was put in as a flood gauge primarily but now really we use it as a to, to monitor the the, the the you know the the level of the river but it's also kind of meant to we also get used to look at the um for the low flows which is not as good at but anyway we can get into that a little bit later but we do have the usgs gauge that kind of shows those those river events over time and since being recorded 55 was the biggest and then 64 and um and then, you know, there was fishing happening at the same time. This was a, a world-class fishery, and and it was, you know, if you see rivers of a lost coast, the Navarro from the Russian up to the eel was really. Um, it was a gold rush. It was a fish rush too. So there was there was logging. There was amazing fishery, and um, and a whole you know the, the ranching way of life in the, the the technical conference yesterday, it was interesting. There was some history being given out around sort of those early days as the as the vineyards were getting established. There was this transition kind of from logging into sort of some of the early wine days and uh, and there was some ranching. And they were just talking about there was up to like thirty seven mills uh, in the anders in the watershed at the, at the peak. And, um, they all burned their slash, so they all had these teepee burners, and it was the air quality here was not really great, apparently. it wasn't really it was a little bit of a kind of a dirty place because of just all of the smoke from the um from the 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 logging slash burning and uh, that was i thought an interesting kind of picture in my mind that's not it's so bucolic that it's hard to imagine those days. and if you Look at the photos of Navarro, and you see this on the coast of, you know, the historic photos that of what was here not that long ago, right? I mean, it's about 100 years, and uh, it yeah. was it's just amazing. We still see remnants of the old railroad trellises and things like that, and certainly some of the big tree stumps are all, all around when we're out there. You can see those and how big mm-hmm. those trees were.
0: I'm glad you brought that up, because it's interesting how many rail lines once traversed the watersheds of the North Coast, and they were generally constructed within river valleys. In fact, I was working on a grant proposal recently, and was reminded that there was a railroad that crossed over from the North Fork Navarro River to the Albion, and then another line that ran directly up the Navarro River for about 14 miles. And that would ship logs to the mouth of the river where there was once a sawmill.
1: Yeah. So the, so the early, in terms of the, back to sort of the RCDs work in sediment, maybe we can just, um, if want to kind of have a little bit of the evolution of the, 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 the restoration work that we've done is, yeah, I guess I, I just to just to, finish up on sort of the history just and then on the transitions because that what happened after you know the the fishery really collapsed my understanding that if you again back to rivers of a lost coast it you know by the early 70s it was over they the fishery had totally collapsed at that time and then we had the 70s and that's kind of where that story ends in, in terms of the film where in the 76 77 drought and then you know I still hear from people that there were fish here in our streams through the eighties. And I, I should just really take a moment. I mean, to highlight that we still have wild runs of coho salmon and steelhead and they are considered, you know, they're, they're definitely, um, you know, very diminished, (laughs) extremely diminished populations. We have in terms of coho salmon, the, the numbers that are, have come out of the, Coastal Monitoring Project with the Department of Fish and Wildlife and Mendocino Redwood Company um, have been doing for years that the coho numbers have been from, you know, zero in 2014. We had a zero return of the adults. The, the, the We can talk more about this later, too, but the bar never opened that year, as people remember, that terrible drought year that we had, and um, up to about six or 700 fish. And we're, the, the target numbers for recovery are, I believe, for Coho around six to seven thousand fish. So we need like a basically a tenfold increase. And steelhead are kind of similar numbers, except I think they're more. We're looking at hoping to get up to nine thousand. Um, and we're, we're, you know, the the steelhead numbers as of recently aren't really any better in the Navarro than Coho, from what I can see. Um, so that's been a concern because a lot of the focus has been on coho as being the endangered species, but that, again, that's another issue um, that we're, but it is important that the the agencies, NOAA Fisheries and Department of Fish and Wildlife and the, the responsible for the recovery of the species, um, primarily um, in the organization supporting that, that the California coastal coho salmon population central california coastal it's, a, it's an evolutionary significant unit that runs from like Santa Cruz up to the northern boundary of Mendocino County where it switches as you get to the northern part of the county into the there's a, a to the southern oregon northern california evolutionary significant unit so in terms of ccc coho the Navarro is considered a stronghold and it's a priority watershed for um, for for restoration and recovery of the population. So it's particularly the North Fork and from Mill Creek and Indian Creek down, uh, there's been sort of phased um, sort of core areas that have been identified for recovery for coho in the watershed. And, um, and Steelhead used the whole watershed. We have five major sub basins in the Navarro that we've got the Rancheria Creek as it goes all the way up. It's like, I think, almost maybe 36 miles, I think. Um, over 30 miles to get to the headwaters, uh, which is out past Yorkville. Um, and it's sort of like a little adjunct that goes out Elkhorn Road and out to sort of the ranch lands out there. Uh, very fragile soils. The steelhead and historically coho were out there as well. And then we have Anderson Creek Subbasin comes in when you drive over Ukiah uh, 253. Anderson Creek Subbasin kind of comes in from the Yorkville Ranch and um, down to Peachland. And um, that drains into what we really know of as the Anderson Valley. So when you drive through on 128 and you're driving through the Anderson Creek Subbasin, and when you get to Philo, just at when you're at, it's coming into the town of Philo, we have Indian Creek subbasin comes in sort of from Peachland and Clow Ridge, if you're familiar with any of these areas, and uh, really beautiful sort of comes in from the east, uh, draining into the Navarro. Those three subbasins, the Rancheria, Anderson Creek, and Indian Creek, Right there in Philo, if you take Ray's Road out, is the, the headwaters. It's where the Navarro River starts. And we like to, you know, a little saying is that the Rancheria, Anderson, Indian, formed the Navarro and it spells rain. So that's one way to remember it. And so from that point in Philo, it becomes the main stem, uh, we call the main stem Navarro subbasin. So you've got Greenwood Ridge. It goes down through Hendy Woods and Mill Creek subbasin comes down a little bit further. And, and that continues all the way out to the coast. There's one more big, large, beautiful subbasin that comes in from Compchi. And that is a, the most heavily forested and kind of different soils and the cooler temperatures that come in. That's the North Fork Navarro. And that is where the predominant, like, coho populations are and, and, and recovery core area is in the North Fork and up again, up to Mill Creek and Indian Creek. Um, so, in terms of like from the restoration plan that came out in 1998, there was um, basically again. Then there was the 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 listing for too much sediment and too high of temperatures. But this there was a sediment action plan that came out from the North Coast Regional Water Quality Control Board that had targets for reducing sediment. And that action plan it's a it's a legal those are legal targets that um, you know, basically for land uses that need to be there's funding that helps meet those, you know, implement practices that help reduce sediment. So one of the first things that we did was one, we did we did do some stream bank, you know, some stream bank restoration. So there's a lot there is definitely a lot of eroding stream banks um and in size channel channels throughout the watershed, especially in the upper part, when I talked about the Rancheria and Anderson Creek subbasins they have very fragile soils. This Francis- Franciscan melange uh, soils are some of the most fragile in the world. And so with all the road building that had happened uh, from basically ranch development and the forestry in the into the hills and, you know, the roads just been put in everywhere, there's also been sort of, um, there were some new techniques that were being developed through Pacific Watershed Associates and Danny Hagans and Bill Weaver and with the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District in the late 90s also at that time wrote the first version of the Forest and Ranch Roads Handbook. And these were progressive road techniques that really changed how we started building roads so that they made them more hydrologically invisible. so rather than being sort of drain drainage and inboard ditches to too small of culverts that they sort of started having different they started having different prescriptions, road prescriptions, so that they were there's more out sloping and um, and um, uh, rolling dips they call them. so they're kind of shallow rolling dips there's sizing culverts appropriately for the hundred year storm events rather than when you have these two small culverts, they channel the water like a shotgun out of that inboard ditch, out this like cannon, out on these fragile hillsides where gullies formed. Uh, all over our hill slopes, and took a lot of sediment. So that's where a lot of the sediment has come from, is from those roads. And so that's where a lot of work and effort has gone to upgrading and um, storm-proofing roads to this 100-year storm event. And that what also I've come to learn is that what happened was not only did that sediment get delivered to the streams, but it also sped up the hydrology in the watershed so that Basically, we drained the watershed so much faster. We channelized it into these, uh, gullies so that it was, it, it's a very flashy system now. It moves, the water moves very quickly through it. So in the wintertime, we had actually higher, we have higher flow events with a lot more sediment. Conversely, what's happened is that as that, you know, those high flow events come, the, the, the streams incised So there's, you know, a little bit, just super quick hydrology lesson that I, you know, little elevator speech, but a a stream is going to have several ways of moderating its energy and flow. And that's going to be, it's going to meander where in the town of Boonville and through Boonville and where there's developed areas, there's no room to meander because we've, we've built up against those creeks, right, right up to, right up to their edges or it's, you know, ideally if it's it wasn't, it, or it's going to incise, so they call it hungry water, and it just starts taking it ba- its banks. And so then it just keeps digging deeper and deeper into the valley floor and taking more sediment, right? So it's just this chain reaction of sediment. And then um, conversely, if it still has places where it can, it will overtop its banks and release energy that way and connect to its floodplain, which is now, sort of what we're an ideal in some ways, if we can find places where that where the creeks and the rivers can overtop their banks and, and access their floodplains. But what's important about that is we have a lot of incision and, and size creeks on the North Coast. And that what that does is it lowers the water table. So we have these flashier systems in the wintertime, so bigger, stronger storm events and flows that are like highways of water. And then in the summer, it actually is the converse. It's the water table has now sunk where those streams are incised. And so the wells have had to go deeper and they they just dry out faster and they're having to navigate and have, now we manage a lot of our, what we call maybe urban streams where they can't meander or, and release their water on access, their floodplains. You just try and you know, they get wide enough so that they create sort of a naturalized channel at the bottom of that incised area, if you're following me. <laughs> and so yeah, sediment was, is, was, the, was, the first, was the first real priority for us for many years. And then it evolved because we did a lot of road, we've been doing a lot of road work, particularly in the upper parts of that watershed in Yorkville area. Uh, on those fragile soils, but all through wherever you know, through public funds, working with ranches and upgrading and stormproofing roads through a lot of rural subdivisions now. So there's road networks and driveways going everywhere. So almost everybody has a, a cold to you know some culvert or a crossing or erosion issues that uh, that have needed to be dealt with. So we still do that type of work. And by 20 by 2012 it was clear that the, the the flows have just been continuing to go down. We've just been seeing receding flow and lack of the changing, whether it's climate change, change of weather patterns. But by 2012 and the start of the drought that we were in a critical, it was clear we could do all the work that we wanted to on restoring you know, addressing sediment and trying to restore watershed function and processes. But if there's no water in the streams in the summer, then it's not. You know, what are we doing? So we really have switched from that time, from since 2012 to a, a lot of focus on flows and in-stream habitat for large wood projects that we've worked on with, with you guys and Trout Unlimited, and um, and that's been sort of the bulk of our work since, since that time.
0: Let's take a quick break. Uh, you are listening to the ecology hour and I'm Anna Halligan. This is KZYX Mendocino County public broadcasting, listener supported community radio. We stream live at KZYX.org and can also be found on Facebook And just a reminder to the listeners that it's pledge drive time. And if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to KZYX. You can do this in several ways. You can visit kzyx.org. You can mail a check to P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466. And although the phone lines are not active right now, you can call in from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. anytime this week at 707-895-2233. These donations are critical to the operations of the station. They help bring unique programming like the Ecology Hour to the station, and they also help reflect all the unique voices of Mendocino County. And with that, we will return to my pre-recorded interview with Linda McElwee, who is the Watershed Coordinator for the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District in the Navarro River Watershed. Linda was just describing the history of conservation in the Navarro River Watershed and had begun to talk a little bit about the recent efforts of the RCD to conserve stream flow which is really challenging work to take on, particularly in an unpredictable climate. So my next question for Linda was, could she please describe the planning activities that the RCD has been involved in, um, particularly all of the landowner coordination that the RCD led, and talk a little bit about what the strategy is when trying to conserve streamflow at a watershed scale.
1: <laughs> yeah it's nothing like living in a variable climate during climate change right <clears throat> so um, mm-hmm. in, yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> so um since 2013 um we uh were uh, we've been working with the nature conservancy they they came and started coming in they were um interested to work on the North Coast uh, to help. They were realizing, and I think this is an important part of the the story, that they had their own model, the Nature Conservancy, had been working to sort of set land aside and conserve and conservation easements and, and, and set land aside. And what they were coming to realize is that setting land aside uh, without sort of even the the human component and addressing the human component and relationships of uh, of, of land stewardship and land use that they were not meeting their goals of helping to recover endangered species. And so they were interested to, um, they came in to help. We had a, a, I would say a data issue where we were, we didn't really know what was going on. We have the one gauge at the down at the like around the 5.3 mile marker but there's the whole rest of the watershed that we really we knew flows have been receding we didn't really know what um what where to prioritize our work except that we know that the coho are primarily in that north fork area but um you know we we were doing what we could we were working on starting to do the large wood projects which we can talk briefly yeah you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit but then they they came in to help us with some science uh provide science and data and we they set up we now have i think there's about 19 gauges uh throughout the watershed that are helping us to understand sort of where where the hot spots are where we also uh, to mon- help monitor the, the restoration actions that we have been taking and uh in since that time uh, we started a partnership with the Nature Conservancy and Trout Unlimited on flow. It's called the flow enhancement, Navarro flow enhancement partnership. And we focus uh, our work and uh, together on working with landowners and uh, to enhance stream flows. So that gauging network also helps monitor the efficacy and the effectiveness of the the projects that we've been implementing. We have uh, been working. We did prior. We chose to work in Mill Creek Watershed as a priority stream, even though the the North Fork maybe was a priority in terms of numbers of Coho salmon. Why we chose to work in Mill Creek to to really start some of our work together in a really concentrated way is to work in one sub basin. And um, we have been, we have, there's a suite of practices that kind of keeps evolving, but we have some basic practices that we have been implementing and uh, putting into practice uh, to help restore stream flows. And, um, and we chose Mill Creek because it has two rural subdivisions on both sides of it. So we've got Holmes Ranch Road and the Nash Mill community are both there's road networks going up both sides. There is coho presence there. And so, um, at, but they're mostly, mostly down at the lower end. And so the idea is to really hopefully prove effectiveness in this one watershed. And then kind of, if we can do it there, the the hope and the wish and desire is that we can do it anywhere on the North coast. And so, we have these practices that are, there's off-stream storage. So that is getting people off of their, uh, their summer diversions. That was sort of the prior priorities. Reduce summer diversions, direct diversions that were in the creek. So that looks like potentially it could be a pond. We've done some large tanks. And then we also concurrent with that, there has to be a new water, right? Because oftentimes the you have to have a water right to store, capture and winter storm flow during the, the, the winter months when there's high flows, we have more than enough water here. I think the water demand for the whole watershed is like 1% of what the total water availability is. It's just that all the water comes in the winter time and we need it in the, the late summer uh if we need it through the summer months when there it, it's not here anymore and so how do we hold on to that water longer or for avail- make it available during those summer months. We did realize that the pinch point in the life cycle of the Coho famine is the late season summer flows. It was those the, as the creeks have been drying up and the the the, the pools become disconnected, the rate of mortality of those juvenile young of the year salmon goes way up. The temperatures go up, the dissolved oxygen goes up uh, and it's um, or goes down, I guess. And so it's um, it's that there's mortality. And and, then what we're talking about is a fractions of, of cubic feet per second, which is how we measure stream stream flows for the most part in CFS. And so it's, we're talking about literally it's, it's like, I think that one of the magic numbers is like 0.1 CFS. I mean, it is it is not a lot of water that we're trying to put back into the streams to help keep them the streams flow connected uh, so that, that, that the, the pools can stay cooler and wetted longer and um, that dissolved oxygen levels higher. And so we have this suite of like a toolbox of practices that we work with landowners on. And as I was talking about the the offstream storage is one. that seems to be very effective, obviously getting people off stream and, and you know it gets complicated in water rights, we could do a you should do a whole show, and you maybe you have on water rights. <laughs> um, and so that's a whole that's we also do a lot of work helping landowners make this you know get new water rights to switch their time of use. And um, also we have, but that includes rainwater catchment. So we also that's a great strategy that we're employing, and think that that is just makes nothing but perfect sense as to it is. We are able to capture rainwater legally in California. There's sort of a um that in the past, that was somehow it, it was illegal, but it is that is no longer the case. And California voters voted in twenty eighteen to um actually incentivize rainwater capture by not having any improvements or rainwater catchment systems be assessed with your for your, with your property values or and so that is um something that everybody voted on and there's a lot of funding now that is kind of coming in to support uh, uh these kinds of activities and the, a 5000 gallon tank can make a big difference and not to get you know that could also be another whole show, but rainwater catchment. And you know, in, in Mendocino County, a five thousand gallon tank or less, you do not need a building permit for. And so, and there's some um there's some guidelines and templates online for people to do that. And it just makes just perfect sense. And then, with those rainwater catchment tanks, that brings us in a way to our, another strategy we have, which is infiltration. <clears throat> and at infiltration is uh, a project that It's really evolving quickly, and it's nothing new, but it's sort of re, re, getting re, major reinvigoration in the fact that basically a lot of the – we've been doing all these, like, you know, trying to get people off their diversions, additional storage. Um, you know, we've been putting in large wood, and we can talk about that a little bit, about what that does to help build pools. Um, but uh, just to, to stay on the infiltration piece for a moment is that what we're realizing is that all of those other activities, we're still not getting to the do the um, the result of really impacting enough, having the full effect of re- recovering stream flows, enhancing stream flows to the degree that we need to. And it's, it's now we're just, I, I know it seems obvious, but it's just watershed scale. So from ridge to river, we've impacted and changed the natural processes. Even in Mill Creek, as an example, the logging practices, the way the forest has regrown, there's a lot more younger trees that are now, there's a lot of fuel loads. So um, there's a lot of all those gullies I talked about and the flashiness. There's the sediment issue. There's more people they're using. There's more wells. There's more water use. So this is death by a thousand cuts. So the idea is just, to to restore those flows in the in, in Mill Creek, for example, it's 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 going to be dozens, if not you know pro- hundreds of projects to get it back to where it needs to be to support enough water. There is it's totally possible to have enough water for families, for the farms, and for the fish. That's our our belief, and uh, we're working hard to try and prove that. <laughs> I think the agencies are are interested to support it as well.
0: Linda, this is really interesting. Uh, it sounds like, you know, when you're trying to understand and conserve stream flow, the conversation isn't just focused on the direct withdrawals that occur in a watershed, but it's also you have to look at the greater alterations to the landscape and the impacts to stream flow that have occurred as a result of the ways that we've changed the topography of the landscape and then therefore changed the way that water is held and processed in the watershed. So it sounds like you have to address both. You have to look at how many straws are in the creek and you have to understand how to restore watershed processes that can hold and retain water. All of this discussion about stream flow makes me think about the ways that people interact with water. And over the last few summers, when there have been extremely low flow conditions, there have also been these toxic cyanobacteria blooms that are really harmful to people and their pets. And the presence of this cyanobacteria in the estuary and the main stem river impacts people's ability to recreate on the river And so you referenced the estuary earlier, and I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the estuary. It's a bar-formed estuary, which is a common feature of many North Coast rivers. Um, This results in periods of the year when the river is connected to the ocean and then periods when it is not. And there has been some debate about what to do about the estuary connectivity. The last few years, the estuary has looked pretty rough, uh, especially during the peak of the summer with really large algal flats covering the water. And then this presence of the cyanobacteria has happened. And, you know, people have strong relationships with these places. And as such, there's often a desire to have a call for action. And so I'm curious what you have to say about estuary restoration What are the issues in the estuary and what could restoration look like there? Um, What should we be thinking about if we have concerns about the habitat quality?
1: Yeah. um, So, so yeah, it's the, the drought years have been punishing, right? So I said, I mentioned 2012 where, you know, where I would say this past, you know, decade plus now, um, it, it was, you know, we had eight years of drought. We had 2019 was, you know, 2017 was, you know, a banner year, 2019 in and out of drought. And then 2020 through 20 through last year, 2022, were as bad, if not, they were worse, I believe, in the record from the 76, 77 drought years, which I think really were considered a death knell at that time. And we were just sort of seeing still some. For some recovery, but I, I'm the, these drought years have been like the, the Navarro in I think it was 2021 got to zero zero flow, so that was a first. Like it stopped flowing, and it was you can if you go to the went to the Greenwood Bridge or even down. I think it was the same year we had a harmful algal bloom at the estuary, so people were you know basically you know signs with like no swimming, get your, you know, people were getting, you know, have you know, some people got sick, I believe, and dogs can die from that. So it is very serious. And as you say, it just looked, it was, it was pitiful. So, and if you looked at them, the Greenwood Bridge, it was just covered with this uh, plant called azola, which is duckweed. And um, it was, look, it was like a pond, just completely covered. And, it, and there's a lot we don't know. So, that that shows up when there's no flow so that's one thing we just really don't know that much is that a good thing is it shading the water is it pulling out oxygen is it keeping it cool is it is it it is a very important carbon sequestration plant so it is there's like an azolla period in the geologic record so it's you know anyway it's it, it we don't really know the science of is that good or it's, it doesn't seem like it's good that that hasn't shown up since that started showing up in 2012 that wear this uh, Azola. and as you get down further into the estuary, as you're saying, with the bar closing and these harmful algal blooms, and we, there's, it's also the estuary we don't have a lot of study on. So when we're talking about all that sediment, that of course that's still working its way all the way through the system. So is that bar down there more formidable than it used to be because it just has all these fine sediments and sand that's been coming down through the whole watershed? Well. Um, Unfortunately, again, the Nature Conservancy just got a, a, a been recommended for funding. I it, it seems like they're announcing it a lot, so I, I really hope it, it it's you know the, it will continue to just. Rec- we have to always be cautious because recommendation until you actually have a contract, you know, you, there's always a question. But um, <laughs> they just got an eight eight point three million dollar grant through the um, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and uh, or Noah, Sorry, it was NOAA. Sorry. No, yeah, uh, the Gnome Restoration Center. I think they did get it, but like you said, we. They, okay. It's not our yeah. Okay. project. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And was so awarded. Yeah. Yeah, so what's exciting about that is it is going to study the estuary more. We're going to do, there's going to be some, um, some the RCD is just playing a small role in facilitating a technical advisory committee to, there's going to be some in-stream, sort of off-stream and in-stream habitat structures similar to sort of what was been built up on Ten Mile. And So some of that grant is part of for Ten Mile, some of it's for the Navarro Estuary, and some of it's for the Garcia, where they've been doing a lot of work in the estuary, so So this is really exciting to have the Navarro be part of it. And we hope there will be a study also separate from doing designs and looking at, you know, developing some in-stream habitat on some of those lower gulches in the Navarro that are really important for off-stream, you know, getting fish habitat in those lower reaches. Um, But there also is going to be a a whole study of the estuary that hopefully will answer some of these questions because every year in – you know, as we get to the end of the season, it's October and, you know, we have the rains, we're all anticipating the rains. And, you know, the other thing that sort of happened is that there's been ponds built everywhere. So we have a flashier system, but then there's like hundreds of more ponds here in the system as well. So, you know, this, in the early days that didn't have bypass requirements or anything. And so, you know, it's hard to say, but maybe some of that water gets impounded and held in the higher in the system and not to the creeks early as it used to be, as it used to. So there's possibly a delay in how that winter, first winter rains and the timing. But there's also, it's, um, you know, we need about at least, it depends on how the rains come, but I think we need like, you know, over four, closer to six inches of rain kind of to get to the flows. And it depends when we had the drought years, we have a deficit, the soil water deficit. And so there, that takes time as well. That That has its own influence, but people are always wanting and i think fish and wildlife used to with equipment or however used to open up that bar and they and the fishermen i've heard is say well if only fish and wildlife would open allow that bar to get opened again and and they don't allow that anymore they just want to they don't i think they don't want to have that kind of heavy-handed impact to the system right now i don't you know but one of the things that i've come to understand or we've come to understand is that if we open up that bar and the flows aren't adequate up in the system, then we're inviting fish into a system that isn't really ready for them. <laughs> if you're following me, the flows aren't adequate. And it just it it does always build up and it, the road closes because it backs up. And what's happened lately, it seems, is these king tides. Kind of come at the same time often as we're getting these storms. <laughs> and so they're pushing the sandbar up bigger, these king tides with the full moon, and then the rivers as swells until there's some balance. We got enough and it will break open. And I, I've had people send me video. I haven't been there myself to see it open, but what a beautiful thing when it does. And meanwhile, when that bar is closed, is that the salmon are out there waiting to come in, and the sea lions now are out there just picking out the the the, the, the mm-hmm. salmon. And so um, that's you know it's you know when you start pulling on one thread, it it just connects to that's one thing about yeah. watershed restoration. Yeah. It's all connected, right?
0: Before we close, there's a few more things I want the listeners to know about. Uh, In addition to the streamflow enhancement work that the RCD is leading in the watershed, there's another climate stressor, which is the increased risk of wildfire. And I know you and your colleagues at the RCD are leading a lot of efforts to work with the community members in the Navarro watershed on fire safety planning. And I just want to take a moment to call that work out and commend the RCD on its efforts to help community members be more proactive about fire safety. Also, there is a rural forest and ranch road workshop that's coming up. It's being hosted at Jug Handle Farm, and I believe it's on July 7th and 8th. And I was just wondering, is that a training that the RCD is involved in? I know you all have been supportive of hosting those types of trainings in the past.
1: This one is being hosted by the Salmon Restoration Federation, SRF, and uh, it's going to be at Jug Handle, but we have done a lot of road work and worked with Pacific Watershed Associates uh, who actually wrote the handbook for Forest Ranch and Rural Roads uh, with assistance from the RCD. Um, That's been sort of the go-to Bible on managing uh, progressive and implementing progressive road techniques across the North Coast.
0: And Linda, where can folks uh, learn more about the programs you work on or get in touch with the Resource Conservation District?
1: Well, sure. Um, They can call me. Uh, My phone number, my work phone is 707-895-3230. And my email is Linda, L-I-N-D-A dot McElwee, M-A-C-E-L-W-E-E at mcrcd.org. And again, the website is uh, Mendocino, it's mcrcd.org. And we also um, have a local, I should just say, a local River, Navarro River Resource Center that we share an office with the Anderson Valley Land Trust in Boonville. So that's another way to just come say hello and or make an appointment and, You want to chat, talk, uh, if you have projects or questions, be happy to, I'm always happy to talk about things going on in the watershed.
0: Well, Linda, we are running short on time, but I do have one more question for you. You have lived in the watershed for a long time, so this question is a little more personal and it is, what is it about the Navarro River watershed that is special to you?
1: Hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, so I, I'll, I will say that, you know, a lot of people, you know, maybe from there are other more, maybe more pristine watersheds, but I don't know that there are many that are as beautiful to me. <laughs> um, and so I feel like we have so much going for us and it is so beautiful. I get to my, I am the one of the luckiest people to do the work that I do and get out, um, to the places and nooks and crannies in the watershed and it's so from from sort of the inland high valleys and ranches and the soils up in the the upper rancheria and you get down into the bogs of of, of the lower estuary um and the gulches down there you know to go from the, the oak woodlands to the you know, beautiful redwood forests that we have, and and know that, and see the young of the year, and this, and salmon. If you're lucky to find salmon and see salmon and steelhead spawning, the diversity that we have here, the community uh, that cares so much about it, and it takes such good care, and uh, so passionate and and you know intelligent and engaged. I'll just say I'm a little biased, but I feel like uh, the people that uh, do live here. Uh, really love this place and, and cherish it. So it's that combination of, you know, if you have time to spend time along the river or go take a walk in Hendy Woods, so locals, uh, in the community around us from Elk to Comchi uh, and, um, can go take a walk in Hendy Woods on the, the, the second Sunday of every month for free. Um, and you see the river and this is a beautiful time cause it's warm and we still have good flow. <laughs> and, um, so mm-hmm. just anybody that can spend time by the river is, you know, please do so. Cause it's, it, we had, it's really a special place and I feel really lucky to be here.
0: It is a special place and I want to thank Linda McElwee for taking the time to sit with me and have this conversation. She was incredibly patient. I was having connection issues. And so a lot of my phone conversation was quite garbled, but we were able to clean it up in the editing. Um, So thank you, Linda, for sharing all of your information about the Navarro River watershed. I want to encourage any listeners who reside in the watershed to follow up on some of the resources that Linda shared. And then I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Ecology Hour. The show airs every Tuesday at 7 p.m. And the show can be listened to online at kzyx.org, which if you're headed to the website, please consider making a donation to KZYX. It is our fundraising time, and it's super easy. You just go on the website and click the Donate tab, and you can make... Uh, Any range of donations, every dollar counts. There are other ways you can donate too. You can mail a check to P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466. And again, please consider making a donation to the station if you listen to the radio. This is the way that we fundraise and support the operations of the station. It's how we bring programming like this to you. And I highly encourage you to support your local community radio station. Thanks for tuning in and have a good night.